0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that explores a full spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy and honored to have you here today. Okay, in today's episode, I release a Dharma talk, and today's talk is on sort of a way of describing. A dimension of the mystical experience which is really a shift from our normal sense of self to a more expansive and inclusive and unified experience of self with all of existence and the phrase that I'll be using is a phrase I picked up from a teacher and monk named Ajahn Amro who's the abbot of a, of a monastery in the Thai forest tradition in the UK but Amro, uh, when I worked with him, described uh, the development in meditation, or the development in the spiritual journey as really shifting of paradigms, where we shift from a paradigm that we begin in, and that's a paradigm of being a separate self or a sense of me with my problems. And we shift from that paradigm into a, as I said, the more in- encompassing, inclusive paradigm of Buddha knowing Dharma, where the Buddha is your own innate awareness knowing the dharma, things as they are. So this is just one way of articulating the development within the mystical spiritual path. But I think it's a good one to, uh, to, to work with and just reflect on. And, and as I say in the talk, uh, there's actually some elements of the instruction and, and as I get into elements of posture that can be a way of literally embodying or instantiating these, um, this development and realization. So I hope you enjoy today's talk, and before I give it to you, I just want to say welcome, a warm welcome to anybody that's new to the podcast, and a warm welcome back to anyone that's been following along for a bit. I ask you regular listeners to consider, if you're able, please consider supporting the show. Um, There's a link in the show notes that has several options for how you could support the show, either by taking a class, getting a book, buying a course, or becoming a member of the Sangha that Terry and I lead. Um, Any of those are very much appreciated, and if you're not able to offer any kind of monetary support, uh, just simply sharing our content, particularly sharing an episode of the podcast with your friends or network, would go a long way to helping us out. So we greatly appreciate any and all support you have, and thank you in advance for that. Now, with a little further ado, before I give you the talk, I just need to issue one disclaimer. Um, the spring is beautiful here in Maine. Uh, Terry and I really couldn't be happier with our house and seeing nature bloom, come into bloom after a, a long winter and particularly a long season of the pandemic. Um, but one of the the, the 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 elements of one of the dukkha elements within spring has been the um, the increased pollen count, and uh, both of us are reeling a little bit as our immune systems are slightly overreactive. So you'll hear in the talk, you can probably hear my voice now, I feel fine, but um, during this talk I was definitely under the sway of pollen allergies. So please forgive any grogginess you might perceive in my voice, and I hope uh, the message that I'm trying to convey sings through the the suboptimal uh, cognitive quality of my mind. (laughs) Anyway, enjoy the talk. Without further ado, here it is, Buddha Knowing Dharma. I wanted to start tonight's talk with a, a passage that I transcribed from a talk by Joseph Campbell. Um, Terry and I have been kind of on a Joseph Campbell bender lately and um, been fascinated and, and to rediscover his work, which I, I, I first encountered in high school with, with his much watched uh, television series with Bill Moyers called The Power of Myth. So if you don't know Joseph Campbell, he was a very highly regarded comparative mythologist, uh, taught at Sarah Lawrence University for about 40 years, I think. And, um, and and his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, I think that's the right title was the inspiration for George Lucas's production or uh, development of Star Wars and um, the in the talk that I transcribed it was it's part of his series called Mythos, which we were find, we have found on Amazon um, but in, in in this talk, he says, "I was recently given an article by some friends in the magazine Foreign Affairs, and the article was called The Care and Repair of Public Myth: The Care and Repair of Public Myth." And in the article, the author says, that a society that does not have a mythology to support it and give it coherence goes into dissolution. That's the end of the quote, or that's the end of the sum- summation of the article. Cam- uh, Campbell then looks right at the camera after he says, without a mythology to support it, a society goes, loses its coherence and goes into dissolution. He looks right in the camera and says, and that's what's happening to us. And this was in the late 80s. <laughs> he then says the article defines myth as an incom- in an incomplete way. So he's not satisfied with the definition that the article gives on myth. He says the article defines it as an, an order of acceptable ideas concerning the cosmos and its parts and nations and other human groups. And then Campbell corrects the definition and says, but. A mythology also concerns the mystic dimension or the mystical dimension. And it's the mystical dimension that informs all of this. And if that's not there, he says, if that's not there, if you don't have a mystical dimension in your mythology, you don't have a mythology. You simply have ideology. So, myth without the mystical dimension is just ideology. And I've been thinking about that phrase for quite some time because I think you know I never would have thought um, the, the Buddha's teachings as a mythology. But the more I reflected on Campbell's definition of mythology here, it, it occurred to me that it really, at the heart of it, the Buddhist teachings is a, is a myth for all of us because it it helps us make sense of our place in the world. Or it makes helps us make sense of our experience in the world. And not just in terms of a conceptual understanding, but with a pedagogy in it. A pedagogy that helps guide us through the challenges, the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of our life. And in guiding us through the ups and downs, it also gives us access to the mystical. The dimension of ourselves that transcends time, space, comings and goings. So I want to speak tonight a little bit about how I see our practice uh, pointing us into leading us onward to the mystical. And I wanted to start with a few definitions about or ways that the mystical journey is often characterized. Not so much the journey itself, but the mystical realization, I should say. So ways that the mystical realization is sometimes characterized. And the first one is the one that I think captured my imagination early on. It was it was an articulation that I said, that whatever whatever that person just said, that's what I want. And the description, the characterization was that. The promise that there was a peace independent of conditions. Or you could, another way of saying that is there's a peace within all conditions, but the conditions that we're experiencing don't affect, don't violate this mystical dimension of peace. And so that's sometimes the way it's often communicated in, in, in the Buddhist tradition, but in, in, in other Buddhist traditions and in, in other religious traditions, sometimes the mystical state or the mystical realization is defined more in terms of its heart heart qualities. So you you, you hear about uh, the experience of universal love and universal compassion that is not partial. It's a completely impartial love for all of existence, a compassion for all of existence, and often so intimately connected to each of these definitions or aspects of the mystical realization is a sense of unity, a profound sense of unity or intimacy with all things. And I love um, there's an articulation of this from the Zen tradition where a woman in the Zen system attained enlightenment and her teacher just said she became intimate with all things as an expression of this unity consciousness. So those are some of the things that kind of animate or inspire and inspire and, and motivate my practice, I'd say. And I hope um, I'll be offering them for inspiration to you. Uh, but one of, one of the things I want to convey and kind of continue on from last week's talk is that on the way to this mystical insight into this mystical realization, on the path of the mystical journey, um, we encounter pain. We we encounter disharmony. And especially, I would say, after we've had a few glimpses of the mystical vision. And I I say it like that because I think that's how it progresses, is that we start to get brief glimpses of it, little moments. Sometimes it's just by happenstance, we get into a flow state. Or sometimes it occurs when we're practicing or after we're practiced. We get a glimpse of it. And then in that that sort of expanded state of awareness or expanded state of consciousness, we become, we develop a heightened sensitivity to unresolved pains and disharmonies either within us or around us or in our society at large. So because of this encounter with pain and disharmony, and, and that's sort of disharmony is my new translation of the word dukkha, which is the first. Uh, reflection the Buddha gave about the, the condition of life and, and dukkha just to review that really is, is just a, a sense of chronic frustration with the way things are. It's, uh, the, the word dukkha is derived from a, a, two, a compound of two words that literally mean a bad hole in a wheel through which the axle goes. So if the if the wheel the hole of the wheel through the, which the axle goes is not spherical. You get a bumpy ride. And that's sort of a, a good uh, physical instantiated uh, expression of, of, of disharmony. But given that we, all be, we, we will be confronting disharmonies in our practice, um, skillful ways of metabolizing and transforming th- these disharmonies is a big piece of the path. So that's why last week, just to review briefly, last week I tried to spend some time speaking about the importance of playing one's edge with disharmony. And I I set that up with this idea that there's three broad zones in practice. There's the zone of safety, where we start on our perch, in our body, feeling our hands, listening to sounds, being with some neutral experience that feels neutral and safe. And then from there, we, we open our mind receptively to the flows of life that come through us we open to the flows of our body, the flows of thought, the flows of feeling, the flows of sound. And as we're open to what life is providing or presenting with, we make ourselves somewhat vulnerable to the unresolved pains and disharmonies in our heart and mind. So that's when we, can, we start to open to from the zone of safety to the zone of tolerance, which I'm trying to define as a zone of tolerable Discomfort, so we might be out of our comfort zone a bit, but we feel capable and able to work with it. And then beyond that is a zone of intolerance where we feel flooded, really overwhelmed, uh, kind of hot under the collar and anxious to to a very uncomfortable degree. And it's in that zone of intolerance that I want to always suggest that you don't stay there, but you redirect your attention and bring it back to the, the zone of safety for a period of time. So this is, a, this is sort of a, a dance with your experience that you will be learning and practicing as you continue to meditate and, and do yoga. And over time, you get more skillful with it. You become, as I was trying to suggest uh, previously, you become more of a, a skillful improviser, that you don't have to think about it so much. You more have a, a kind of an innate trust or innate intuition with when to stay with something and when to back off. So playing the edge and expanding the zone of safety or expanding the zone of peace is how the you could say the mystical journey starts to deepen because we start to be able to open to and be at peace with wider and wider spheres of what life really is. We feel less threatened by virtue of developing skills and uh, capacities to be with the way life is. Which isn't to say you don't have those skills now. I want to be very clear about that. Um, Sometimes I forget to say this, and it it can seem like when you come to the meditative journey or the mystical journey, you're starting it from scratch with with zero skill sets. (laughs) But we're all adults, and we got this far in our life. And to get here required that we have a lot of skill sets already. So what I try to suggest is we're just more or less refining those skills at a subtler level within our being. So as the, as the zone of safety expands or the zone of peace expands, one of the other ways of describing that sort of, quote, unquote, deepening of the path is that our consciousness starts to transform. And that's what I want to kind of highlight here. What, what does it mean that, that consciousness transforms? And I want to share a few different ways that this could be articulated. Uh, the first is from the Thai teacher that I worked with for a while named Ajahn Amaro. And Ajahn often would say, when we start the path, we usually come to the path with a sense of being a person, like a me, with my problems. So we come in with me and my stress, me and my uh, anger, me and my frustration, me and my confusion, me and my despair, me and my depression, whatever it might be, or a combination of all that. As a sense of coming in with, as a, as, a, as a sense of self that's usually separate from the world we're in. That has idiosyncratic personal problems that we're trying to get some relief or therapeutic resolution to. And that's where you know a lot of the mindfulness work that's been uh, secularized in this country has been sort of focused on the on the on the therapeutic aspect for the personality, and that's all. Wonderful. It's all wonderful. But Amaro said, you know, as the practice deepens, there's a shift or a paradigm shift of our sense of self or within our sense of self. And and the way he articulated it, and then I'll give a few different versions of this this sort of idea, the way he articulated it, he says we we start with our sense of self, with our, our me and my problems, and we shift into a paradigm of the Buddha knowing the Dharma. And I, I, I use that language in, to sort of make you wonder, well, what, what, what does that mean? Do I become this, do I, do I transform my body into an ancient, now dead prince from 2,600 years ago who lived in northern India and Nepal? No, I don't mean that. So the Buddha does not refer to this. It sometimes refers to the historical figure. but. The way Amaro meant it is that we wake up to the Buddha within or our own innate wakeful awareness. So the Buddha literally means the one who's awake. So, and that's within all of us, the one who is awake. So we wake up to awareness, awake awareness, that knows the Dharma, knows Dharma. And Dharma is simply conditions as they are. Conditions as they are. Another way of putting this is sort of inspired by Joseph Campbell type language. You could say we shift, we we start out as the vehicle of consciousness, like the, the, the vehicle, the body of consciousness, the me that has consciousness. And we shift to consciousness knowing the content of consciousness. Like our identity becomes, resides more in the consciousness that knows things than it, than it is situated in the content of consciousness that's known by consciousness. Now, that's, that's a, I don't think I've ever used consciousness more frequently in one sentence, <laughs> so maybe slow down there again. We often start out like we, we feel like our, we're a body. We identify with the body and feelings and, and, and history and, and ideas that has consciousness. And as we start to observe this whole process in the meditation, we start to rest back more and more into the consciousness that knows. And that consciousness that knows feels relative to the changing content within the field of consciousness. Consciousness itself is, is very still. So it's, it's just always like it is. It's like this, knowing sights, knowing sounds, knowing thoughts, knowing sensations, knowing feelings. And I want to say it like that because When we use the word "the deepening on the path, we talk about our spiritual practice deepening or getting deeper or the path is getting deeper. It it comes with a a whole bunch of baggage around what that word deeper means. And, And it's not uncommon for people to think that they have to have a deeper experience for their practice to be deep. Deeper experience, maybe some non-normal state of consciousness, or a supernatural state of consciousness, or some like really exciting display of spiritual lights in your third eye, and maybe some vibrational stuff in one of your chakras, or uh, celestial sounds coming to you, or voices coming to you from from a different dimension, or something like that. I'm just sort of uh, guessing what people might think. But the way I'm referring to it here is that um, the depth is not one of going into a deeper state, per se. The depth is realizing that the consciousness we're resting into and and starting to to realize as the transcendent element of our experience, that transcendent element is resting, as, as some folks have said, it's resting on the surface of every experience. So it's not the, the, the consciousness that we're resting into and, and, and awakening is not hiding deep in experience. It's on the surface of every experience. So right now, you know, your, your natural consciousness hears my voice as one of the things we're engaged with, just listening. And that natural listening is picked up by this awareness that I'm referring to. Awareness, knowing sound. And that doesn't require any of you to be sort of pinching yourselves in the leg, but pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. It happens spontaneously and naturally. So it's, it, this is why in the instructions I give, and, and many people give it, the, the importance of relaxation is key. Anytime we, we, we move beyond relaxation, we're trying to make something special happen, which denies the, the ever-present on the surface of everything, experience of natural consciousness. So here I'm going to use, you know, a a little bit more Joseph Campbell-like language. He says, do we identify with the features of the vehicle? And in yoga language, there's a a term ahamkara, the eye-making Process of consciousness, or the eye-making process of the the self, the ah, "ahamkara," I am my car, I am my vehicle. We shift from that to, as Campbell would say, the light within the vehicle. The light becomes more of our center of gravity for who and what we are, in relationship to the changing nature of the ever increasingly aged vehicle that we're in and then and then there's even a stage beyond just identifying as the light in your own vehicle you start to recognize that the light in your vehicle is no different from the light in all vehicles and that's another dimension of this opening of an awakening when i try to put it in very prosaic terms I, i i try to suggest this idea of the center of gravity of your being, like who you take yourself to be, in a deep, profound way. You identify with the personality, your likes, your dislikes, your plans, your memories, and all of that. Or do you identify with awareness? And I think there's a, the spiritual journey facilitates a, a shift from a personality-based being to more of an awareness-based being. And I want to mention, just so you know, or don't get confused here when i say that when we shift to an awareness-based being i don't mean the personality disappears at all it's it's more when we wake up to awareness the awareness transcends and includes the former self of what we took ourselves to be the former definition of ourselves so that remains it's just that the former sense of ourself or the personality-based being gets recontextualized in a very big open space of, of 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 being that we, that we come to rest and, and identify as. So That's one thing, the personality doesn't go away. We, if anything, it becomes a little bit bigger when we wake up because it's not constrained by the normal fears it used to have when it was defending itself as the source of our identity. We become more free, there's more courage, there's more um, trust. But the other part of shifting into an awareness-based being that I want to point out is that it does not, as I tried to hint last week, it does not imply that we become detached or indifferent or passive or cut off or numb. Those are all kind of perversions or degradations of of the actual experience. And this speaks to what I would call a kind of paradox at the heart of the mystical awakening. The paradox is that we both no longer identify with the things we used to take ourselves to be. We're no longer identified with really anything other than a capacity to know. The consciousness itself becomes the, the root of one's identity. So there's no longer, and this is like the high end stage or the like the, the, the big end uh, dunk of, of the, the deep end of the, the mystical swimming pool is what I'm trying to get at. So there's no longer any identification with form, but there's also, as I tried to imply with the Zen phrase of becoming intimate with all things, there's no longer any separation with the world of form. So there's a much more intimate sense of being connected and alive to everything. And that can sound really kind of like, out there, it can sound a little bit conceptual or too abstract. So I want to kind of try to root this now in a very simple example that my first teacher Rodney Smith used to use. He said he'd hold up his two hands and he said, "Imagine that the two hands I have have a perception of themselves as being separate. So there's a little ego in the right hand and there's a little ego in the left hand, and they're they're kind of always." wondering about the other, what's that hand getting up to? What's that hand getting up to? And one day, the the two hands are trying to to slice an onion, to chop up an onion, and the knife slips against the onion and it nicks the finger of the left hand. Not a very unpleasant experience, having had done it a few times. So the little finger, the, 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 and this is not the, the ungly mala st- story I told before, but the, the, the finger is, is now nicked, and it's bleeding. Now, from the perception of separation, the right hand might say, oh, my goodness, left hand, you did it again. Why did you cut yourself? You're always getting cut. And the left hand say, what do you mean? You did it. You were holding the knife, and you slipped, and you cut my finger. And they can get into the squabble, this, this sort of game of, like, who's responsible for the fact that the finger is cut? And that's, that's all born from the perception of separation. But of course, my consciousness unifies these two hands and there isn't any quibbling. There's no delay. There's no hesitation. There's just an immediate action of care. So when the heart wakes up to unity, intimacy with all things, this is not a barren wasteland of detachment. This becomes a very empathic, compassionate, loving, connected presence in the world. And I was, I was really thinking about this a lot over the weekend in the, in the, in the module that I was teaching. And um, I, I started thinking about this mudra, this, this hand position that I'd seen um, in in various systems of Buddhist practice, but particularly in the Mahayana tradition, where in the Mahayana school, which is the sort of the Northern school of Buddhism that evolved out of the early traditions of Buddhism. In the Mahayana, they place great emphasis on compassionate action, compassionate engagement with the world. And this hand position is, you've probably seen it. I'm gonna bring my hands down a little bit. Is the left hand cupped and the right hand cupped resting into it like this and then the thumbs touch and tonight I'm going to suggest we try this for this reason the left hand represents the yin or feminine aspect of our being and sort of mythologically the feminine yin side represents in spiritual terms the world of flowing form So the world of flowing experience is is often uh, kind of signified by the left hand here. And the right hand represents the yang aspect of our being, the masculine, or the world of formless consciousness that wakes up out of the world of form. So that's what, as I was saying earlier, This shift from moving, moving from the from the identity of being me and my problems to Buddha consciousness awareness. That's this transcendent element of awareness, awake to the world of form, to the Dharma, the way it is. And rather than having these two separate, so like the 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 world of the 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 the, the un let me say say it again the world of unmanifest existence as formless existence as consciousness is not separate from the world of experience. In the mudra, they are brought together. This is the integration of awakening within the world. So the mudra itself is actually sort of a concrete representation of this abstract ideal of waking up to our true nature, which then embraces us into a world of compassionate action. And then so you have the left hand holding the right. So the world of form holding the formless world of awareness. They're not two. They're not separate. And then the thumbs touch, which is the spiritual union of the two. So I want to—I just wanted to walk you through that a little bit because I'd like to try that. Have you try that in the practice tonight? Now, this is optional. So any hand position, it doesn't carry, it doesn't mean you're becoming uh, indoctrinated into any kind of weird cult of any form. This is just an ancient mudra that's been used for thousands of years, even prior to the Buddha himself. Um, it really means the, the meditation mudra, but it becomes the reason I like it is that it brings <coughs> the body on board as an expression of the journey itself that we're waking up to our awareness, knowing Dharma, knowing things as they are. Which is knowing a sound as a sound, knowing a thought as a thought, knowing a sensation as a sensation. Awareness wakes up to the world of thought and the world of form, and then it integrates into the world of form with its awakened heart. And that's the touch of the thumbs resting together as that union. Okay. I hope you enjoyed today's talk. And again, if you're at all able, please consider supporting the show. There's several links in the show notes for you, but either attending a class, buying a book, a course, or becoming a member. These are all relatively inexpensive and easy ways that you can help out, pitch in, and generate some good karma by supporting our work together. I hope the reflections in today's talk also give you some good fodder for your own practice. And I, most of all, I'm really interested to hear how these kinds of reflections land with you. So if you have questions or comments or experiences to share with me, please, please send them in. I'm, as I mentioned or hinted at previously, Another time, I'm, I'm in the process of writing a book now, so the feedback on these reflections is really helpful in, in terms of how I can calibrate, how I articulate what's going on. Um, so if you're if you're all interested, I do welcome hearing from you, and my email is josh at joshsummers.net, um, where you can send messages directly to me. Anyway, thanks in advance for all of that. Uh, I hope you stay well, I hope you have a great week. Stay strong, stay safe, keep practicing. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take care.